Well, I invite you all to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, Philippians 1. And you'll need a Bible to follow along. These guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back. And they'll get a Bible to you so that you can look at the passage we'll be considering today. And it's marked for you at Philippians chapter 1. When individuals fail to see themselves as part of something larger than their particular lives or their assigned task, they place themselves and others in a difficult position. A political candidate who does not care what effect he or she has on the party's goals, for instance, who's only interested in his or herself, can do damage to an entire movement and the many individuals that are associated with it. An employee in a company will easily become discontented in his job if he does not see that what he does day in and day out is actually contributing in a significant way to the company's product or service. A family member who decides to emotionally check out, to check out from parents or children or siblings, that family member can adversely affect the family's cohesion because Though they're present in the house, they're not fully there. And in attitude, they communicate they don't want to be. A person who has experienced a series of unfortunate circumstances can easily become embittered if they see what they're going through as just one random mishap after another, not connected to any larger purpose or meaning. Now, you can apply this principle to any collection of individuals in any arena. When a person fails to see themselves as part of something larger, they're prone to act in ways that are detrimental to both themselves and to others. And those who lead these collections of individuals, if they're going to be effective in their leadership, they have to succeed then in having each person that's involved in the enterprise, see the importance of the larger group and its goals. You can see this principle in team sports. The coach must get the team to see the larger picture. Now, I mean no disrespect to the many MSU fans we have in our congregation. But I'm going to use an illustration from Michigan Wolverine, legendary football coach, the late Bo Schimbeckler. (laughs) did you hear that amen there'll be a time for repentance also after now Bo like all coaches would give speeches to his teams to get them fired up and inspire them to go out and to win games one of his more famous team speeches goes like this we want to win the big 10 championship And we're going to win it as a team. They can throw out all those great backs and great quarterbacks and great defensive players throughout the country and in this conference. But there's going to be one team that's going to play solely as a team. No man is more important than the team. No coach is more important than the team. The team. The team. The team. And if you think that way, then all of us, in everything you do, if you take into consideration what effect it has on the team. Because you can go into professional football. You can go anywhere you want to play after you leave here. 
And you'll never play for a team again. You'll play for a contract. You'll play for this. You'll play for that. You'll play for everything except the team. And think of what a great thing it is to be a part of something that is the team. We're going to win it. We're going to win the championship again because we're going to play as a team. Better than anybody else in this conference, we're going to play together as a team. We're going to believe in each other. We're not going to criticize each other. We're not going to talk about each other. We're going to encourage each other. And when we play as a team, when the old season is over, you and I know it's going to be Michigan again. Michigan. Where's that amen? Now, in his 21 years as the Michigan head coach, Schimbeckler's teams won or shared that Big Ten championship 13 times. In the 26 years since, they've only won eight. The last one was in 2004. Now, maybe Jim Harbaugh has given the team speech again this year. We'll, We'll see. But today, we begin a series in the book of Philippians. And I've entitled the entire series, Together for the Gospel. And I've done so because I believe the great apostle who wrote Philippians understood the team principle very well. In this short but powerful letter written to Christians who were experiencing difficulty both from the inside of the church and outside the church, he reminded them that they are part of something larger. And that they serve someone more important than themselves. In these four chapters, he uses the term gospel more than any of his other letters. He uses the names Christ and Jesus 40 times. What he's doing is connecting the Philippians and their situation to the larger calling to advance the gospel of Christ. And in the description that we have on our website for this series, I say this. Most of us live compartmentalized lives with our various roles and responsibilities and relationships existing in separate compartments without a unifying purpose. The Bible addresses this issue in the brief but powerful book of Philippians in which we're taught that everything we do and everything that is done to us is a means to advance the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And so it says, quote, to live is Christ. We're told to, quote, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. We're told to press on toward the goal and rejoice in the Lord always and be content whatever the circumstances. And then I say there, join us on Sundays at 930 for Philippians together for the gospel as we learn how this perspective radically changes the way we see every area of our lives. Over the next few weeks, that's what we hope to see together beginning today. Let's ask the Lord to help us then. Father, thank you for gathering us. And we thank you for gathering us because your providence is behind everything that happens it's behind our ability to be here. You've orchestrated the circumstances so that we could be here in this sacred moment to hear from you. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time as we thank you for all things. 
And we ask you in this time that we have together to help us to focus our minds, help us to open our hearts to your truth, and help us then, Lord, to begin to see, as we will over these next many weeks, begin to see today that we are part of something eternal. We are something part of something larger than ourselves. As a result of that, Lord, help us to see ourselves and see our circumstances in light of all you see and all that you are doing. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Every week we insert for you an outline for you to follow along in the message. And we've got that outline inserted in today's program. I encourage you to take that out if you don't have it out already. And the first point you see there is this. That relationship is for the gospel. Relationship is for the gospel. Now, I say that because of how this letter begins. The book of Philippians, that is this letter from one Paul to Christians in a town called Philippi. Verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father, And the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a somewhat standard greeting that's similar to what Paul gives in his other letters that are included in your Bible. But this one has a couple of features of of note. First of all, he mentions himself, but also Timothy. And it's not that both of them wrote the letter. Paul is actually the author. It's just that Timothy is well known to the Christians to whom he is writing in the city of Philippi, and Timothy happened to be with Paul when he wrote this. And so Paul's the one who wrote it, but he says it's Paul and Timothy who are greeting you. But the most unusual feature in this greeting is that after mentioning God's holy people, which he does in several of his letters, if you were to go through to the letter of 1 Thessalonians, of Romans, of uh, first and second Corinthians, you would find at the beginning a similar kind of greeting, and it would include to the saints or to God's holy people. So he does that in several of his letters. But in this one, in verse one, he also says, together with the overseers and the deacons. And this is the only letter in which he specifically mentions categories of God's holy people in the greeting. So you've got God's holy people, that's the entire congregation, that's the entire church, but then he says the whole congregation together with this grouping called the overseers and deacons. Now the overseers are what we would call pastors. And the pastors and the deacons were the leaders of the church. And he's saying then in the very first verse that the leaders are part of God's holy people. They are part of the congregation. They are not above it or better than it, but they are part of the church and they are players on the team in Philippi. We're going to see in the weeks ahead that there is dissension and there is selfish ambition within this congregation. And so all of God's holy people are together united in the purpose that he's going to lay out in this in this letter. And then in verse three, he says to them, having greeted them, I thank my God every time I remember you. So what is it and who is it? that Paul might have remembered from this church at Philippi. 
Well, in order for us to answer that, we need some some background. The background is this, that Paul and others visited the city of Philippi as part of the second series of trips that Paul took to spread the gospel. We call it Paul's second missionary journey. And he undertook these uh, these journeys in order to visit cities to preach the gospel, see people converted to Christ, gather these believers into congregations, and then leave the city with a church having been established. We read about Paul's travels in another book in your Bible. So when you read these letters of Philippians and Corinthians and Thessalonians, for example, you want to correlate what you read there with what's said in this other book of the Bible, that is the the book of Acts. It's in the book of Acts that we're told about the travels of Paul and his companions. And here's what the book of Acts says about Paul and this city, Philippi. In Acts chapter 16, it says, Paul and his companions traveled to Philippi, the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and they stayed there several days. Now, a little background on the city. It's called Philippi because it is named after Philip II of Macedon. Philip was the father of Alexander the Great. And so Philippi was an important city of the province of Macedonia in the first century. Paul's itinerary for for these gospel travels usually included commercial cities of importance, and Philippi fit that bill. And so he and others stopped in at Philippi, probably about the year 49 A.D., to spread the gospel. And here's what that account in Acts chapter 16 goes on to tell us. On the Sabbath, we, that's Luke, one of Paul's companions saying we, Paul, myself, and others, went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. That seems weird, doesn't it? We went to Philippi, and on the Sabbath, we went to the river, and we went to the river expecting to find a place of prayer there. Now, why would you expect to find a place of prayer by a river? Well, in Jewish law, a congregation, a Jewish congregation was made up of 10 men. Wherever there were 10 male heads of households who could be in regular attendance, a synagogue was to be formed. But failing that, if you don't have that many to form a synagogue, then a place of prayer under the open sky and near a river or the sea was to be arranged for And Philippi apparently did not have the quorum necessary, and so Philippi was without a synagogue. And on the Sabbath then, therefore, Paul and his companions walked outside the city in search of a Jewish place of prayer, probably heading toward a particular river that's about a mile and a half west of the city. And there they found some women gathered, some Jewish women uh, gathered to recite the Shema, to pray and to read from the Law and the Prophets and to discuss what they had read and, if possibly, hopefully to hear from a traveling Jewish teacher, give an exposition or an exhortation to receive a blessing. When they arrived there, when they arrived at this river, this is what the Bible tells us. It says, We sat down and we began to speak to the women who had gathered there. So you have these women who have gathered Many of them, some of them uh, undoubtedly Jewish, 
But one of them in particular is singled out in this passage. In Acts chapter 16, it says, One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. Now, get the scene. You've got these people who are Jewish, or we're going to see in the case of Lydia, she's a Gentile, but she practices Judaism. And they are there at this river. There is no synagogue, and they are there to, to worship to worship God. And Paul and his companions come, and Paul begins to, begins to, to speak. And one of those who hears is singled out. It's Lydia, this dealer in purple cloth from a town called Thyatira. Now, Thyatira was formerly in something called the ancient kingdom of, of Lydia. So it appears she was actually named after where she was from. And this city, Thyatira, was famous for making purple dyes and for dyeing clothes. And these were industries that were carried on mostly by women at home. And as an artisan in these purple dyes, Lydia had in all likelihood come to Philippi to carry on her trade. She's spoken of in this verse as a worshiper of God or a God-fearer. That is, a Gentile who believes in one God and follows the laws and customs of Judaism but is not converted to a Jew. She was probably given instruction in a synagogue back in Thyatira before carrying on her interest in Judaism in this new town in Philippi. One writer says, we may surmise that she was either a widow or unmarried and that some of the women gathered for worship were relatives and servants who were living in this businesswoman's home. Paul preaches Jesus. And God, the Bible tells us, opened Lydia's heart and she responded to the gospel message, becoming a Christian and becoming as well a helper in the mission for Paul and his companions. In fact, immediately she opens up her home to them and asks them to stay there, and they are persuaded to do so. And when you get to the end of this episode in Acts chapter 16, it appears that Christians are now having an ongoing meeting in her home, that the church in Philippi is meeting in Lydia's house. Here's what the Bible says. The members of her household were baptized. So not only did she come to Christ, but those in her household... Her servants and relatives came to Christ. They were baptized. She invited us to her home. And then it says at the end of that chapter, at Lydia's house, they met with the brothers and sisters. So when Paul says in chapter 1 and verse 3, he thanks God every time he remembers the Philippians. He undoubtedly is thinking about this woman, Lydia. He may also be thinking about a female slave who they found in that city of Philippi as well. A female slave who made money for her owners as a fortune teller. And Acts chapter 16 tells us she was healed of her demonic possession by the intercession of Paul. She may have become a Christian, though the Bible doesn't tell us what became of her. This may be one of the people that Paul is fondly remembering when he looks back on ministry in the city of Philippi, but it certainly included the Philippian jailer. And you all remember that story. Uh, After Paul had interceded and this demon was cast out of this uh, female slave, her owners became angry because their money had been taken. Part of their livelihood had been taken. She was making money for them in doing this. 
And Acts chapter 16 tells us that they took Paul and Silas, one of his companions, to the authorities. And they said that they are advocating an unauthorized religion. Now, in Philippi, as we're going to see in a little bit, Philippi was kind of a privileged city because it was a Roman, it had become a Roman city. And Judaism was an authorized religion, but Christianity was not. And so as a result of this, Paul and Silas are placed in jail. They have stocks uh, put on them, shackles put on them, and a jailer is assigned to oversee them. And as you read that episode in Acts chapter 16, God miraculously brings a violent earthquake that shakes open the doors of the the cells, removes the shackles from the prisoners. And this jailer is awakened and he takes a light to see what's going on. And he's sure these prisoners are gone. And he takes out a sword, the Bible tells us, to take his own life. Now, why is he going to take his own life? Because his life's going to be taken by his bosses anyway. So let's just get it over with and avoid the shame that's going to go with that. He's going to take his life, but Paul sees him in the light and he says, wait, we're all still here. And this Philippian jailer in that episode asks famously of Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be rescued, to be delivered? And then Paul replies famously, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And that man, and the Bible tells us his household as well, were also saved. So these fond remembrances for the Philippian Christians included Lydia, undoubtedly, perhaps this female slave who was healed of her demon possession by the intercession of Paul, certainly this Philippian jailer. And it would also have included gratitude for the gift of money that had been sent to Paul by the Philippians and which occasioned this letter for him to write back to them. Take a look at chapter 2 and verse 25. Chapter 2 and verse 25. He says in verse 25, I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother co-worker and fellow soldier who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs and when you go to chapter four you don't need to do that now but when we get there in the weeks to come there paul again will mention the fact that these christians in philippi have refreshed him materially by giving to him what he needed and that was brought to him by the hand of Epaphroditus. Now, chapter 1 and verse 3, where he says, I thank my God every time I remember you, can be translated, I thank my God every time actually you remember me. That is, Paul's saying, I thank my God every time I remember how you remember me, how you have taken care of me. Because of their generosity to Paul in meeting his physical needs, that would make some sense. And in fact, he speaks several times in other places in the Bible about the Macedonian churches of which the church in Philippi was a part and their generosity to meet the needs of Paul and his traveling companions. Second Corinthians eight says this. We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. And that includes Philippi and includes 
Thessalonica, and it would include Berea as well. That passage goes on to say they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. So Paul's relationship with this congregation is deep. It's deep in that he founded this church. It's deep in that he would remember Lydia and perhaps the female slave and the Philippian jailer and he and these gifts that are given by the church at Philippi. In addition to all of that, he made at least three more visits to this church after this initial one recorded in Acts chapter 16. In 2 Corinthians 1, he says, I wanted to visit you, Corinthians, on my way to Macedonia, again, where Philippi is located, and to come back to you from Macedonia. Later in that book, he talks about, just simply says, we came into Macedonia. And then a third time in Acts chapter 20, we decided to go back through Macedonia and we later sailed from Philippi. So he has this close relationship with these people. He's visited this church, not only in the initial time, but at least three times after that. And so his relationship is very deep. And it's been over 10 years now since he started this church. And they have helped him in his ministry in the intervening time. So as he writes this letter that we're going to consider over the next few weeks, it's been over 10 years since he first met these women at that river in Philippi. And that's why verses 4 and 5, he says of these Christians in Philippi, in all my prayers, verse 4, for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. In all my prayers for all of you, written in such a way as to suggest that Paul had a regular time of prayer and people for whom he prayed. And the Philippians were on it. And in all of my prayers, in my prayers, and my list, and you're on it, when I pray for you, I do so with joy. And that joy comes from the fact that you are partners with me in the gospel. That's why I've titled this series Together for the Gospel. Everything that's happening that he's going to write to them about in the subsequent chapters, all that's going on in his life, all of that is about being together, being partners in the gospel. Now that word in verse 5, that's translated partnership. It's a Greek word that even though you don't know Greek, probably, you may know this Greek word, koinonia. In fact, I believe the King James says, uh, I, thank, I, I thank my God with joy because of your fellowship in the gospel. And that's the word that most of the English word most of us associate with koinonia, fellowship. But here it's translated a partnership. It's something that they're actively engaged in, something that Paul is actively engaged in, and that they do together. It's something that they have in common. That's the root of koinonia. They have in common their relationship with the Lord Jesus, and they have in common the mission that he has given to them mutually to carry out. Partnership, fellowship, koinonia in the gospel. Now, friends, think about them for a few moments. Relationship. Relationship, I've said here, is for the gospel. 
And Paul is thinking about these relationships and he's thinking about these Philippian Christians, but he's thinking about them in terms of the gospel enterprise to which they have all been called. How do you think about relationships? How do you think about the relationships that you have with people in this congregation? Is this a partnership in the gospel? And we need to just think for a few moments about how we engage in and pursue our relationships with one another. Relationship is for the gospel. That's what it was for Paul. That's what we have been in God's good providence called together to do, to shoulder together, to advance the gospel and to pull our gifts and our abilities together and our resources to see the gospel move forward. Do you think about your relationships with God's holy people, your brothers and sisters, that way? What do you talk about with one another? What do we talk about with one another? Do we talk about things that are related to the mission? Do we prioritize things that are related to our ability to be as fully engaged as possible in the mission? That may mean spiritual issues that are going on in our lives that would hinder us from doing that. Well, if we're going to be partners together, we've got to help each other get back in the game as healthy as possible. So that would certainly be a part of that. But you would, you would agree, even though it would involve all sorts of things, in order for us to mutually help one another to be fully engaged in this partnership in the Great Commission, the mission, the gospel, it would involve all sorts of things. It probably doesn't involve a lot of the things that we spend most of our time talking about. So I encourage you today, during our refreshment time, as you talk to one another, we greet one another, we small talk, but think about what it is we're here together to do. And think about engaging one another in what the Lord is doing in each other's lives and how the Lord is opening doors for us to share the gospel with others or to help others grow in the gospel. Relationship is for the gospel. Secondly, in your outline, hardship is for the gospel. Relationship is for the gospel. And hardship is for the gospel. And in this letter, Paul gives two categories of hardship that both he is experienced that he is experiencing, but also they are experiencing. The first one I have in your outline is external. Hardship is for the gospel, and external hardship is for the gospel. Now, what is this external hardship that he and they are experiencing? Well, that goes back to something I mentioned about the city of Philippi and its, and its history. I mentioned that it had become a Roman city. I've already quoted for, I had on the screen for you, Acts chapter 16 and verse 12. But I want that to show you that again because I purposely left a phrase out when I showed it to you last time. Last time I said, Paul and his companions traveled to Philippi, dot, 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 the leading city of that district of Macedonia. But it actually says they traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. Why is that important? Well, Paul is in Rome. Paul is under house arrest 
when he writes this letter to the Philippian Christians. That means he's under the supervision of a Roman guard at all times. In chapter 1, verses 7 and 13 and 17, all mention his imprisonment or his, his chain. And this Roman connection and the fact that Paul is under arrest in Rome is important. So we need to know a little bit about how this city became a Roman colony, how it became a Roman city. So just bear with me for just a moment. In 42 B.C., there were two uh, battles fought nearby the area of Philippi. One was between Cassius and Brutus. You remember those names in history as the assassins of Julius Caesar? And they fought a battle against Octavian, who later became known as, known as Caesar Augustus, who was the Caesar uh, in Rome at the time Jesus was born after this event. Octavian and Mark Antony of Antony and Cleopatra fame. And so they, they have this battle, and Octavian and Antony are, are victors. And after these victories, Octavian honored Philippi by refounding it as a Roman military colony. And that endowed everybody in that city with Roman citizenship. And Octavian was always politically astute. And so he populated the town and its surrounding area with discharged veterans from that war. So people that had helped him in that war settled there, stayed there, and were Roman citizens in Philippi. That alleviated a population problem that they were having in Rome, but it also ensured allegiance to the empire through the emperor at this strategic spot, Philippi, which was along a major highway that connected Rome and other points east. He had another very astute move that he made. Octavian did the same thing after he defeated Antony in another battle in 30 B.C. And this time he had the veterans from Antony's army stay in Philippi. And so he thereby built up loyalty among those who had once fought for him and more recently had even fought against him. So what you have in Philippi is a population of people who are fiercely loyal to Rome. And the reason Paul is under arrest is because of Rome. And these Christians are living in a town where the first allegiance of the citizenry is to Rome. We're going to see, as we go through the book of Philippians that Paul very carefully uses the title Lord for Jesus to make sure that these Christians in Philippi understand who is really King Caesar. And it's really Jesus. And so Paul is undergoing hardship because of Rome, and they are suffering, according to verse 29 of chapter 1, the same struggle that I still have. The Philippians are struggling. And so one commentator says this, Paul's suffering is both for the defense of the gospel and at the hands of the empire. And these Philippian believers are being opposed as well. Not only is he under arrest in Rome, they're being opposed in Philippi, opposed by a, quote, warped and crooked generation, according to chapter 2 and verse 15. A generation that will be destroyed, according to chapter 1 and verse 28. 
These passages can refer only to the pagan populace of the city of Philippi, who happen also to be citizens of Rome in a Roman military colony and descendants of repatriated soldiers who are fiercely loyal to the emperor. And thus they, the populace at Philippi, loyal to Rome, are the source of this external hardship, suffering for the Christians there. Paul's under the hand of Rome. They are under the hand of Rome. We're going to see how that plays out going forward. But it's the gospel that is still going to be most important. Even in this hardship. Hardship is for the advance of the gospel. In fact, in verse 12 of chapter 1, Paul tells them, Look, I want to assure you, I want you to know that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. He's going to try to convince them that what's happening to them is going to do the very same thing. Everything is for the gospel, including hardship, external hardship, but also now internal hardship. I say in your outline, internal hardship is for the gospel. Paul is going to go on to say in chapter 1 that there are some who preach Christ out of selfish ambition, out of false motives. But nevertheless, I thank God, I praise God that Christ is is preached. But he's got these kind of competitors who have false and ill motives going on. So not only does he have this external hardship, he has this sort of internal hardship. And as you read the letter of Philippians, you find that they are having internal hardships as well. Not only because they are under the the boot of Rome, but also because sin being what it is, they have selfish ambition and vain conceit within their own congregation. And so chapter 1 and verse 27, they are told, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, striving together as one, For the faith of the gospel. Do you see here? If you're not united. If you don't strive together as one. It's going to affect our ability to advance the gospel. And so in chapter 2 and verse 3. Chapter 2 and verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Or vain conceit. But rather in humility value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests but each of you to the interests of others. There is this internal hardship going on, this internal problem that's going on because of selfish ambition on the part of some, putting their own interests above the team, the enterprise, the mission. And it's having and will have ill effects, so much so that Paul singles out two women by name in chapter 4. By name, he's asked these two women to be united in mind and and in heart. These may have been two of the women that he originally met at that river in Philippi. But nevertheless, they are now at odds with each other. And these hardships are to be seen and to be dealt with in light of the gospel and the importance of the gospel. These external hardships have been brought on them. These internal hardships in Philippi, they brought on themselves. But in both cases, the way to deal with them is to prioritize the gospel. Relationship is for the gospel. Hardship is for the gospel. And I say lastly, discipleship is for the gospel. 
So what's the answer then to this selfish ambition and vain conceit? When we come to chapter 2, which we just quoted, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And then right after saying, consider others better than uh, yourselves. Famously in verse 5, it says, let this attitude, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then we're given the model of the Lord Jesus Christ to follow as disciples, followers, learners of him. Later in the letter, Paul will go on to say, follow Christ, but follow me as well as I follow Christ. So the answer to this selfish ambition or posturing within the church, as one commentator calls it, is humility. And that humility will come by following and imitating and being a disciple of Christ and of Paul. The Philippians are in a life and death struggle for the gospel in the city of Philippi. Now hear this, and if their present unrest goes uncorrected, it could blunt, if not destroy, their witness to Christ in that city. So what's most important? The gospel, Christ, the mission. Relationship is for mission. Hardship is for the gospel. Relationship is for the gospel and discipleship is is for the gospel. Remember I gave you that speech from Bo Schembechler from 1983 about the team, the team, the team. I've tried to put together a number of things that the great apostle says in this letter to us about the importance of the mission, the mission, the mission. And here's what I imagine him saying to us. We want to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. But we need each other to get there. We're going to win the prize as partners in the gospel. There are celebrity pastors and churches and evangelists out there, but we will serve the Lord together with no one greater than anyone else. No man or woman is more important than the mission. No pastor is more important than the mission. The mission, the mission, the mission. There are all sorts of endeavors that call for your energy and your time and your talent and your treasure. But none of those compare to the joy of serving someone and something that is greater than yourself. We will finish the course and we will win the prize because God finishes what he starts and he is at work in each of us to will and to act according to his good pleasure. We will follow Christ's example of humility and service. We will follow Paul's example of the same. And we will do nothing that puts our own interests above those of others. We will not complain or argue or hold grudges. Instead, we will conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we will strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. And when our time is up and our mission in this warped and crooked generation is done, We can say on the day of Christ that we did not run or labor in vain. And then our home will be where our citizenship is. And you and I know it's going to be heaven. Pure heaven. Friends, that's what the letter of Philippians is asking us to do. The gospel, the mission, Christ. 
Your take-home truth then is this. Everything is for the gospel. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, thank you for meeting with us, for giving us the privilege of opening your word and seeing there the lives and the hearts of your people. We thank you for the great apostle and your work in his life and the example that he is to us for lives that are sold out to you. So, Lord, help us to be inspired by his example. Help us to be inspired most of all by the example of our Lord Jesus Christ who condescended for the sake of others and came to earth to do for us what we could not do for ourselves without selfish ambition or vain conceit. Lord, we ask you in the weeks ahead to help us as we look at this marvelous letter to see the priority of the mission of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, then to make changes in our lives, tangible changes in our lives, reprioritizing lesser things so that we can prioritize what is most important, the eternal mission that you have given to us. And Lord, help us even this week to begin to think about these matters. Help us to think about how we have ordered our lives and how we have pursued our relationships and how we see the difficulties that you have sovereignly brought into our lives. Lord, help us to see all of that and the necessity of our growth in you as your disciples as connected to the mission and the gospel. As a result of that, may we as individuals, but collectively, as one man, as it were, as your church, carry on as a light in Trenton and beyond for the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.